Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. Today is an exciting day for me. Really, it's the culmination of three years of work. Today is the day when I am sitting down with former ACLU Executive Director and Fire Advisory Council member Ira Glasser to discuss the new documentary film about his life and career, Mighty Ira, A Civil Liberty Story, a film I co-directed with my colleagues Aaron Reese and Chris Malpe. Ira's free speech advocacy is the narrative through line for the film particularly his involvement in the famous 1978 Skokie case in which neo-Nazis wanted to rally in a town with thousands of residents who survived the Holocaust. But along the way, you will learn about Ira's growing up in Brooklyn and seeing Jackie Robinson break the color barrier in baseball. You'll learn about his friendship with conservative icon William F. Buckley Jr., and you'll learn about his path to the ACLU, which led through Bobby Kennedy's office. You will also see Ira's first-ever meeting with the 97-year-old Holocaust survivor Ben Stern, who organized the opposition to the neo-Nazi rally in Skokie, Illinois. The film is now available to watch via the Angelica Film Center's virtual cinema program. You can find a link to purchase a ticket to that screening at MightyIra.com or in the show notes. The screenings run through at least October 15th, but could go for another week after that if it does well at the so-called virtual box office. On October 23rd, Mighty Ira will be available to stream on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play, and it will be available on DVD and Blu-ray on October 27th. The film is already available for pre-order on iTunes. Now, longtime listeners to this podcast will know that I had Ira on the show for a marathon two-hour episode in May of 2017. That episode was the inspiration for the Mighty Ira documentary, and this episode is sort of a reflection on some of what has happened since. For big fans of Ira and the documentary, we are releasing a companion episode to this one in which I narrate Mighty Ira and provide some of the background on the story and the filmmaking process. You can find that episode in the So To Speak feed, but I suggest watching the film first before listening to the watch-along narration of the film. Now, without any further ado, I present the man himself, Mighty Ira Glasser. So Iro, welcome back onto the show. Well, thank you. It's been a it's been a long journey. Whenever I tell people about how the uh, film happened, I always start with that twenty five minute podcast that turned into a three hour podcast in your apartment in New York. <laughs> well, I always like to tell people that you told me that you might not remember much, and then you <laughs> you get to my apartment there in in New York City, you sit down, and two and a half hours later, we're still talking. <laughs> And there's still much more to cover. I tell I tell people that story also, and I and I tell them how how uh, sort of astonished you were. And I said, well, the thing that Nico never understood is that I didn't remember much. I mean, if he thinks two and a half hours was the product of remembering a lot, he should only have seen me when I did remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know I, I think we should maybe tell our listeners, at least from my perspective, of how this idea was conceived or it began. I mean, it began before that, I think it was April, 2017 podcast. It began in January of 2017 when Nat Hentoff, the famous columnist and civil libertarian passed away. 
I went to his funeral, which I think was at Riverside Memorial Chapel, and I saw Michael Myers there, who was one of your old colleagues and the leader of the New York Civil Rights Coalition. And he had introduced me to you and Norman Siegel, Norman Siegel, who's also in the documentary. And I forget if it was you or Norman, but Michael said that I worked at fire. And one of you said, you do what we used to do. And I'm looking at you both and I'm saying, well, who, who are you and what did you used to do? Uh, and then of yes, course you yes. introduced what you used to do. And I'm first off kind of ashamed that I didn't know who either of you were. Uh, and we go and there's, you know, of course a beautiful service to Nat, but Michael connects us afterwards and I invite you on the podcast. And then that's when we sat down, uh, and as the start of a very long journey for me, learning about kind of your generation of, uh, so-called civil libertarians and what animated your work and how you went about it. And, uh, it was just an honor really to get to know you and to get to know Norman and Philippa Strum and David Goldberger. Um, you know, the old school liberals as, uh, Harvey Silverglate likes to put it, the free speech liberals, um, with a small L of course, you know, are really heroes to, to a lot of us who do this work now. And, you know, that, that shining light of a generation is now retiring. And in some cases, folks like uh, Norman Dorson or, you know, are passing away, Nat Hentoff are passing away. So it was a privilege to be able to capture you know, part of this story through one man, in this case yourself. So it was an honor. Well, you know, the, the, um, uh, my, my phrase for uh, our brand of uh, civil libertarians was always, we were, I regarded ourselves as the social justice libertarians. And um, uh, that phrase came about at a, uh, an annual conference of, of an organization called the Drug Policy Foundation, whose founder, Arnold Treback, just died this, this past year during this a few months ago. And it was the first organization that was, that was founded and functioned uh, to try to uh, uh, gather together everybody that was against the uh, drug war and the uh, excesses of the drug war into one place and begin to build the movement. And uh, in those days, the thing that was astonishing about the 200 or so odd people who came to these conferences, they were annual conferences, was that they were all white. They were all, you know, mostly involved with marijuana and not necessarily with a lot of the uh, other uh, drug issues and always puzzled me. I, I went there once when I was still head of the ACLU. They invited me there and I, and I came and I was amazed because my experience at the ACLU had been is that although the war on drugs was an abomination to the principles of John Stuart Mill and, and individual autonomy and, and uh, bodily autonomy, and that was sort of a core basic civil liberties principle. Uh, the fact is, is that in my experience at the ACLU, uh, most of the enforcement uh, of the uh, war on drugs was disproportionately against black and brown people. So I had begun at the ACLU to, to see that in addition to the John Stuart Mill libertarian personal autonomy issue that led to our opposing the war on drugs, there was the this whole racial injustice issue about who who was it really being enforced against, and nobody at this conference really saw that. And it took many many years before the complexion of these conferences and the participants started to change. At one of the things that that organization used to do 
every year is give out awards for various kinds of things because there really wasn't much else that they could do back then. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. And one year they gave an award to Thomas Says, the uh, iconoclastic uh, psychiatrist who had long opposed the abuses of uh, locking up people on the grounds of mental illness and, 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 and in these snake pit institutions. And that's where I knew him from. But it turned out he was also an opponent of the war on drugs, sort of on the same libertarian principles. But he never talked about the racial disproportion. He just talked about personal autonomy. I had never met him, although I was very familiar with his writings and relied on them a lot at the ACLU in various ways. And so he accepts the award and he gives this big libertarian speech which was unexceptional and with, with which I agreed completely. And then, <laughs> you know, he walks over to the table where I was sitting and he sits down and we introduce each other. And he says to me, well, you know, if you're not a free market libertarian, what are you? And I looked at him and smiled and it was just completely spontaneous, you know, out of nowhere. I said, well, uh, I'm a social justice libertarian. And he says, well, what does that mean? I said, well, it means that, you know, at the ACLU, we fight a lot against uh, racial subjugation. We fight a lot against uh, the subjugation uh, of women and of gays and of prisoners and of mental patients and of children and, and on and on and on. And, and free speech is one of the core issues for us, but it's not the only core issue. So we, we define ourselves as social justice libertarians. And that's what to us civil liberties is. And he couldn't understand it. And, and I've had that discussion over the years with people like Milton Friedman, who never understood why the ACLU was opposed to school vouchers. So you've met Milton Friedman, huh? Oh, met and, and debated him, yes. Oh, interesting. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I, you know, I, I wonder whether the social justice aspect of that description, social justice, civil libertarian, is even necessary as a way to distinguish yourself from, you know, the small L free market libertarians, because that's why you put civil before the libertarian. You're talking about civil issues or social issues as opposed to some of the fiscal or economic issues. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's 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 correct. I mean, when Roger Baldwin, who started the ACLU 100 years ago in 1920, called the organization the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, that was the first time, I think, in our history that the phrase civil liberties had ever been part of an organization's name. It became a brand, but it wasn't at the time. It was, it was really new. And the whole idea of how you define civil liberties was a constantly in flux and in turmoil as the ACLU developed. When I came into the ACLU in the late 60s, they used to use the term civil rights and civil liberties differently. Well, I had always thought that you could uh, you 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 could almost use them interchangeably, and I tried to do some research. Well, into that's this. right. And, and it was like no, I guess during right. Truman's administration, he had a big civil rights uh, panel he put together or commission that he put together, in which they looked at this and kind of distinguished civil rights and civil liberties. There's a paper about it that Randall Kennedy over at Harvard told me about, but it's interesting how the phrases have evolved. Well, it's true, and you know when when I came into the ACLU. In, in the late 60s, not just I, but 
But hold our, our then, I was 29 when I first started at the ACLU, uh, just about the age you are now. And we weren't called the old school then. <laughs> we were the young Turks. We were the rebels. And what we were rebelling about was that the issue of racial injustice and, and discrimination against women were not seen within the ACLU's governing board. Uh, at the time, as equivalent priorities to to free speech and due process and privacy and things like that, our generation had grown up seeing discrimination against on the basis of skin color and sex as predominant issues that inflamed us. And the ACLU board then used to distinguish between civil liberties and civil rights. I mean, we actually had people who got up on the board and said. We're not against civil rights. We're for civil rights, but it isn't really our mission. Uh, that's the NAACP's mission. And we support that mission, uh, but we support it sort of as a friend, not as a, war, uh, not as a, uh, as a warrior. It isn't, it isn't our, our mission is civil liberties, by which they meant free speech and due process uh, issues. And we had a big struggle. In, inside the ACLU uh, in those years between the late 60s and the mid-70s to elevate racial injustice and sexual injustice to equivalent priorities within the ACLU and to erase what we regarded as a phony distinction between civil rights and civil liberties and call them all civil liberties. And that basically happened during my years at the ACLU, not just my doing, but but as part of a whole movement of people like Eleanor Norton and Chuck Morgan and and later uh, people who were slightly younger than I, like Norman Siegel. And the organization changed during those years in that way. I mean, there were fights in the late 60s and early 70s about there not being enough women on the board of the ACLU. And there were, um, and when Ruth Ginsburg was first hired to be the director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project uh, by my predecessor, by Arya Nair, in 1971. That was a huge, big departure from what the how the ACLU had functioned in the past. And one of the reasons why why the women's issue got pushed forward a little faster than the race issue in in the on the ACLU board was that there were women on the board who made that fight. And there was not an equivalent number of blacks on the board. I mean, there were people like Kenneth Clark and Bob Carter, uh, who was one of the guys who argued uh, Brown against Board of Education for the NAACP uh, on the board. But they didn't come that often. They were only two among, you know, 70 people. And so the whole transformation of the ACLU during the years from the mid-late 60s to the mid-late 70s was a transformation that didn't introduce the issues of equality into the ACLU's agenda, but elevated them to a position of equivalence with the more traditional issues of First Amendment and due process. It brings up the question for me, it's like, what's the limiting principle for what we define as a civil liberty? Um, You know, because some might argue that those principles can be expanded into the political realm and that political issues then become civil liberties issues and economic issues then become civil liberties issues. Uh, I'm not saying that the stance that you and your colleagues took in the 60s was wrong, 
uh, you know, I guess this gets down to the question of what is a civil liberty? And when you think of the word libertarian. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, and the issues of how, how you define those have to be done very rigorously and very, um, uh, with a great deal of intellectual and analytic rigor. Otherwise, it just becomes rhetorical and amorphous. And as you say, it can expand too easily to, to, to embrace anything that you feel strongly about whether or not it's a civil liberties issue, and then you call it a civil liberties issue. That's not what we tried to do. There were people in the ACLU who, who, who did that, who, who tried to elevate everything that they felt strongly about into a, an ACLU issue, but that isn't what, we, what the majority of us did. Uh, the definition of civil liberties is, is, to me, what Isaiah Berlin called sort of negative rights. Uh, the, uh, I like to say that the words democracy and liberty, uh, which a lot of people grow up thinking are sort of almost synonyms of each, for each other, are, are really very different. Democracy means a system of government where people vote for representatives and majority prevails. But liberty means that the majority doesn't prevail about everything. And the Bill of Rights defines, is basically a list of limits on majoritarian rule. Uh, if you look at the way the Bill of Rights is written, it's it's all phrased negatively. Congress shall make no law. Yeah, right. And the, the, the rest of the Constitution tells you what the government has the power to do. The Bill of Rights tells you what the government doesn't have the power to do. And when Congress shall make no law means that even if all 535 members of, of Congress uh, want to ban a certain kind of speech, the First Amendment says they can't do it. And, uh, uh, and no other country in, in the world ever had that kind of set of legal limits. They had, they had things like declaration of the rights of man and, and, and declarations and homilies, but they didn't have something that was legally enforceable by a court system. Now, of course, in reality, those limits were not enforced for a very long time. I mean, when the ACLU was created in January of 1920, uh, 100 plus years ago, uh, the Supreme Court had never in 131 years of its existence ever struck down a federal law or action on First Amendment grounds. Not once. So at that time in 1920, 131 years after the, bill, after the First Amendment was passed, you know, people like Margaret Sanger were arrested every Monday and Tuesday for, in New York City for distributing informational leaflets about birth control. To women, and during the period of 1916, 17, 18, when 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 there was an, uh, a, a movement in the United States to oppose America's entrance into World War One, uh, those people were were had had their rallies broken up, uh, had FBI agents in infiltrating them, had their homes searched. Well, that makes me wonder, Ira. So, when the ACLU was founded a hundred years ago this year in 1920. Were those individuals who founded the ACLU concerned with the principles of uh, libertarian autonomy, or were they more concerned with political expediency insofar as these uh, principles of libertarian autonomy would allow them to protest World War One, would allow them to fight well, for reproductive well, there were, rights? There were, there, was, there, were, there were both. I mean, these things are, these kinds of questions are never, are never easily answered uh, in, in 100% you know, black and white, yes or no, 
because but you knew Roger Baldwin, for example. He was a you know he was still around when you were executive director. Yes, yes. I'm assuming you guys had Um, talked about it at some point. Yeah, no, no. There's no question. I mean, the way that the way it happened is that um, uh, Baldwin, as a young man in his twenties, was an activist in an organization called the American Union Against Militarism. And that was a, a political organization uh, that was sort of a pacifist organization, uh, was against war in, in, a, in very broad ways, and, and became one of the organizational uh, focuses uh, of, of activity designed to keep America out of World War I during the uh, Woodrow Wilson years. And, and they spent most of their time lobbying in the streets. I mean, they were very small and they didn't really have any weight in Washington. So they, 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 mostly, they mostly had meetings and leafleted people and made speeches and did all kinds of what we would now call traditional protected First Amendment activity. And they were constantly getting their, their activities busted by cops and uh, both federal and, and state and local and harassed by the FBI and wiretapped and all that kind of stuff. And they began to see that their political goals, which was sort of resisting war, required the ability to have free speech, required the ability to meet, the ability to assemble, the ability to demonstrate, the ability to pass out leaflets, the ability to speak. Without those rights, they couldn't achieve their political ends. So at some point, the American Union Against Militarism creates a little sub-agency inside the organization called the Civil Liberties Bureau, which is the very first time that the phrase civil liberties is attached to anything organizational. It just becomes a little unit, a little department of the American Union Against Militarism. And the guy who is chosen to head it up inside the American Union Against Militarism is this young a social worker activist named Roger Baldwin. And Baldwin spends most of those war years, 1916, 17, and around then, um, trying to protect the speech of the political activists in his organization. So they all were political activists, but they needed speech to make their political activism uh, possible. So they began this effort under Baldwin to, to find, try to find ways to protect the speech rights, and they found out that the First Amendment, uh, as pretty as it sounded, didn't work. Nobody paid attention to it. The courts didn't enforce it. Um, it, was, it was a tiger without teeth. When the war ended in 1918, Baldwin decided that, you know, this is, problem is not going to go away. And, and for all the movements out there, and he was engaged in all of them, the then nascent labor union movement, his friend Margaret Sanger getting arrested in New York for distributing birth control information, the uh, racial issues. He was a political activist who was engaged in all that stuff. And he realized after the war was over that this problem of, the, of free speech not working was going to affect all these movements. And so, so they, they, they took this little unit called the Civil Liberties Bureau out of the uh, American Union Against Militarism and created uh, something called the National Civil Liberties Bureau. I think it was probably five people. 
and and they and they they decided they were going to try and and protect free speech in general. But but in order to get the First Amendment to do what they wanted it to do, they needed to fight it in court, presumably. And Baldwin wasn't well, a lawyer. And, and one of the things you learn no, is that really. about the ACLU is not really. No, I mean they 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 were they. If you look at some early memos from the early days of the ACLU, they regarded going into court as useless because if people who are politically active today think and worry about how conservative the Supreme Court is now, you can only imagine what it was like in the early part of the 20th century. It had never, as I said, uh, uh, struck down a government uh, action uh, on First Amendment grounds. Um, they regarded going into court as, as next to useless. And they made a decision early in the history of the ACLU to, um, to basically use what they called uh, political activism as their leverage, to, to make noise, to speak, to go on the steps of City Hall and, and argue for, for, for rights, to lobby uh, legislatures. They didn't place much store in the, in, the, uh, in the courts because the courts were deeply conservative and, 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 and didn't work. Um, now, now, they were drawn into it. Uh, for example, in 1925, when the ACLU was five years old, John Scopes gets indicted in, in, in Tennessee for teaching evolution. And Baldwin, who was then the new director of the ACLU, enlists, I mean, they had no staff lawyers. You know, they were just 30 or 40 people. And Baldwin was not a lawyer. And Baldwin himself was not a lawyer. So they, they, the only way they could get lawyers were to get lawyers in private practice who were, who were practicing law for a living uh, to volunteer their time to take cases for the ACLU. And Baldwin, Baldwin um, uh, got Clarence Darrow to agree to represent Scopes in what later became known as the monkey trial. And that, you know, as Baldwin always used to love to tell me, he would look at me with this glint in his eye and his smile and say, and that was our first great case, and it's still our greatest case. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, in, in, 19, in 1981, when he was still alive and in his, in his mid-90s, um, uh, the state of Arkansas passed the first creationism law, which, which didn't try to ban the teaching of evolution, but which required that if you were going to teach re- evolution, you also had to teach the biblical story of creation along with it in science classes. So that was sort of the second generation of anti-evolution uh, laws. And, and the ACLU, uh, which I was then the head of, took the case and challenged that law in Arkansas. And when we had the press conference to announce that challenge, instead of running the press conference, I, I asked uh, Baldwin if he would run the press conference because as the director of the ACLU, had started the Scopes case, uh, he was still here when we were uh, starting this creationism case. And I thought it would be great if, if he were the one who, um, who, who presided over the press conference and announced it. And, and he did. And he had this wonderful thing where he said, you know, in 1925, we resisted this. And now in 1981, we're going to resist it again. And this time we're going to win it. And, uh, <laughs> and this time we did win. And, and, and as I used to tell, whenever he told me that Scopes was our biggest, the ACLU's biggest case, 
I would say, yeah, the difference, though, Roger, is that you lost and we won. Did you see the Kevin Spacey, before he got wrapped up in his Me Too scandal, uh, did a one-man show out in Queens, I think called Darrow, in which it, for an hour and a half he does this one-man show uh, where he relays the life of Clarence Darrow. Did you ever hear about that? No, I never did. No, oh, it was so I good. Did. I went I went with my roommate at the time. And it was fantastic. You know, whatever else you might think about Kevin Spacey, he's a tremendous actor and he captured Clarence Darrow so fantastically. And then what's that movie they made about the Scopes trial? Inherit the Wind. Oh, it's that's fantastic as well. Yeah, well, you know, Inherit the Wind before it was a movie was a Broadway play in the uh, in the seventies, I think, or maybe earlier. No, it was earlier. It had to be because the movie was movie was black and white, I think. Yeah, right. Right. The movie, the movie starred Spencer Tracy as Darrow, but the play starred, starred Paul Muni as Darrow and Ed Begley as, as uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Williams Jennings Bryant, was that it? W- Williams Jennings Bryant, yes. Yeah. And I saw the play twice. In, for most of its run, Paul Muni, who's an actor that very few people today remember, but it was a, who was a phenomenal uh, movie actor uh, during the 30s and 40s. He was an old man by then, and he played Darrow in the play, and Ed Begley played William Jennings Bryan. And then toward the end of the run of the play, they switched roles, and Begley plays Darrow, and Muni plays William Jennings Bryan. It was just, it was just fantastic. And I always, as, as great as, as Spencer Tracy was in the movie, I always was mad that they didn't cast uh, Paul Muni in it uh, because his role in the play was so great. And, you know, the trouble with plays is that they don't get, at least in those days, they didn't get recorded. And so, you know, that performance is lost. But yeah, so, so that, and that play was, you know, know, it took, it took liberties with some of the marginal facts as, as, as works of art always do with history. But uh, it basically stayed pretty close to the transcript of the uh, of the actual trial in terms of the, you know what happened and some of the major speeches, and it was uh, uh, the the issues were so similar to the issues we faced in 1981 with the creationism laws, um, and uh, but by that time the courts had changed, the ACLU had grown much bigger and stronger, uh, and and. Uh, and we won that case uh, very decisively, and the state of Arkansas appealed it, and it ended up being joined with a case from Louisiana uh, about the same issues, and we ended up winning it in the in the Supreme Court. And um, when we finally won it in the Supreme Court, and uh, uh, some reporter, I think from Newsweek or Time, uh, called me up and asked me for a comment, my comment was, somewhere in heaven, John Scopes is smiling. <laughs> what was Roger Baldwin like? Uh, I forget what year he died, but we include some footage of him in the documentary from the documentary that was made about him. It was a shorter documentary, 30 minutes, called Traveling Hopefully yeah, from the Traveling 80s. Hopefully, yeah. um, but you know, what was he, what was he kind of like and what was your relationship like with him? Well, Baldwin, Baldwin died that same year in 1981 at the age of 97. Um, and uh, I knew him from the time I came into the ACLU uh, uh, in 1967, when he was, you know, in his early 80s, he was about the same age I am now. 
And, you know, I didn't know him well in those years. He, you know, seemed to me as, you know, this crusty old guy uh, with, with hev- a heavily wrinkled face and, 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 but a fierce glint in his eye. And he just, he was around, but, you know, he had no active role by then. He had been retired for, since 1950. And, um, uh, but when I got to the ACLU in, in, uh, became national director, in, in 1978, and from then until he dies in 1981, I became pretty close with him, and I saw a lot of him. I spent a lot of time with him, uh, and and uh, you know, I always thought of him as a very. Uh, my experience of him was that he was a, a a sort of a a charming old gentleman. You know, uh, you know, still very sharp, uh, had a quick wit, could give a great speech. Uh, but but basically, you know, he, I thought of him as a charmer. And most of the people who I knew, who knew him back when when he was uh, the ACLU executive director, uh, laughed at me when I said that. And I said, you know, they said, he was a pretty brutal politician. I mean, he, you know, he was pretty strong-willed. He ran that place for 30 years. Uh, he brooked no interference if, if, he, could, if he could manage it. Uh, he ran the board more than the board ran him. Well, I mean, you know, he ran the board because he invented the board. I mean, he, he started <laughs> the organization. You know, a founder of an organization always has a different relationship to its board of directors than his successors do because he started the organization. He chose the board of directors. He, you know, he selected them. He basically gave them life. So it's a very difficult thing for him to act as an employee of the board where the board, you know, governs and sets policy and, and the executive director on staff executes the policy. Uh, that's a very different relationship for a founder than it is for anybody who follows the founder. So by the time I come to the, uh, to the ACLU, uh, you know, the board is, is, uh, 80 people, uh, who appear, uh, at meetings, any 60 to 65 uh, come to every meeting. The meetings go on for weekends at a time, and the board is in charge. I work for the board. They make it very clear, you are our employee. We hired you. Um, your, we, our job is to set policy. Your job is to implement the policy that we set. Your job isn't to make policy. Well, that was pretty clear to me. Uh, and that's the way I always functioned, which didn't mean I didn't have influence over the policy that they made, but that was a different relationship. His relationship with the board was, you know, he, he didn't exactly see himself as their employee. And so, you know, the, the view that people had of Baldwin who knew him when he was younger was different than the view I had of him and my experience with him as a 90 plus year old man, um, but he was feisty. I loved him. He was, he, you know, we, we had a, a 95th birthday party for him uh, in somebody's apartment on the Upper West Side. And, you know, 70, 80, 100 people came and, and he arrived and, and um, uh, we, went, we left together. And, and as we were leaving the apartment building and going out into the street, I say to him, well, you know, Roger, I have my car here. It's parked about a block away. Uh, can I give you a lift downtown? He lived in Greenwich Village. And, and he looked at me and he says, no, 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 it's all right. 
and I and you know, and I said, "Well, can I get you a cab?" I mean, the man was ninety-five years old. It was eleven thirty at night, you know, and uh, in Manhattan, and and he, no, 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 he says, "Once you get, once you start taking cabs, there's no end to them." And he disappears <laughs> down, he disappears down the steps of the subway on the corner of Central Park West and Eighty-first Street to go back down to the village, and I look at my wife and I say, "Holy mackerel!" You know, 95 years old, and he disappears into the subway and refuses a cab because he, he, he might get used to it. And, <laughs> and that, you know, that's, that's, the way he, that's the way he was. And was, was he a Brooklyn guy? No. No. Oh, no. He was a Boston Brahmin blue blood. He came from, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the early part of the 20th century, if you were spending your time working for organizations like the American Union Against Militarism, or, or later the ACLU, you had to be independently wealthy because you weren't making a living from jobs like that. So, you know, he was, he was, uh, no, he, he came from a privileged background. He had a, a home on uh, Martha's Vineyard uh, that he disappeared to from time to time. He spent his summers on the, on, on, in those fancy places. No, he was not a street guy. In fact, he was vaguely suspicious of, of me. Uh, I was sort of, uh, you know, I had been the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union for close to a decade and sort of presented myself as a street guy because that's what I was. I mean, I came to ACLU conferences in T-shirts, not in a suit and tie. And I played basketball with the younger lawyers. That's what I projected. He always seemed vaguely mistrustful of that. He was also mistrustful of what he called my New York accent, by which I always took to mean my Brooklyn accent. And I always thought it was even vaguely anti-Semitic because, you know, he kept saying things like when I was a candidate for the national job, well, you know, he may play well in New York, but I don't know how he'll play in Indiana. So we had, you know, a kind of an arm's length relationship until I was there. And then we became closer and more affectionate as we got to work together. But, you know, he wasn't around the office much, but every once in a while he would come in and he would open the door to my office or the door was open and he would stick his head in and he would just look at me with a glint in his eye and wag his finger and say, stay solvent. <laughs> he was a balanced budget. You know, he had, he had presided over the ACLU in the days where its annual budget was $2,500. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and here I was presiding over a you know half a million dollar deficit, and and with an annual budget in the multi millions, and trying to grow it, and with an organization in his days, the organization was twenty five people in New York, period, and in my day, the organization was you know three hundred three hundred and fifty people, with with affiliates and offices in every state in the union. You know, we communicated by, by, by fax machine and, and telephone, and we flew all over the country. He had no fax machine. Uh, telephone long-distance calls were, were almost impossible, uh, uh, prohibitively costly to make. Uh, and when he traveled to California or to Iowa or, or to anywhere else in the country, he took buses and, and, and trains. And, and so... The whole Weltanschauung of, of, of how we operated uh, and what we had become was something of an astonishment to him. Uh, uh, on the other hand, um, we operated uh, with litigation as a primary means of, 
of our leverage, which he had eschewed for the reasons that I explained before. And, and we operated during the heyday of the Warren Court from, from sort of the mid-50s to the mid-70s, um, when, when 80% of the rights that we all wake up with and take for granted today were established during that 20-year period. And so for him, looking back upon his beginning from the perspective of where we were now, must have seemed like an amazing journey. And I always thought how gratifying it must have been to him to realize that, you know, he started this this completely delusional dream in 1920 that with 20 or 30 or 40 people in New York with a budget of a few thousand dollars, uh, they were going to uh, uh, awaken and enforce uh, the Bill of Rights and protect the entire Bill of Rights for everybody in the whole country. I mean, it really was delusional. Um, and then there he is in 1980, looking back upon the growth of that delusion, and it had become largely a reality. And as difficult as a time as we were having, and as much as we felt we were fighting a 12-front war during the Reagan years, for him, it had to have been a sign of enormous progress. And that, I think, is what fueled the relentless optimism that he always reflected, even until the end. Uh, it was an optimism born of his experience of reality, which was that over his lifetime, uh, this idea of protecting rights had grown from a delusion into a, a reality that was, that was not completed, but was, was far along. I mean, if you, he had started out on his own one-yard line and there we were on our opponent's 30-yard line, and, and he could see that. And so it was, it, there was, a, there was a, a thrill to talking with him in those days about that journey. And that's what that documentary about him was called Traveling Hopefully, because he was very fond of, that was a quote from Robert Louis Stevenson, and he was very fond of saying that the, the idea about these sorts of uh, of, 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 of social justice, civil liberties journeys, that you never arrived, but you made progress. You traveled along a path of progress, and you traveled hopefully because you were gaining ground all the time, even though it took a lifetime. And he was a great inspiration for that reason. Well, I, I actually, in the office that I'm sitting right now, have a painting that's kind of always inspired me. It's um, the Wanderer over the Sea of Fog, and it's got this kind of 19th century aristocratic guy with a cane standing at a mountaintop. And you can tell he's he's wandered far, he's traveled far, he's climbed high, but far off in the distance, you see mountaintops that are even higher. And, you know, new mountains to climb, new uh, adventures to take, new goals to set. Uh, so, you know, I've always kind of thought that way as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. And, the, you know, the metaphor um, that I came to use uh, during my days at the ACLU was that, you know, people would say sometimes, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. But I thought that wasn't quite sufficient to explain what it was that we were doing. It wasn't just a marathon. It was a marathon relay race. And the idea of it being a relay race was important to me because what it meant was is that while I was on the track uh, holding the baton in my hand 
and running as hard and as wisely and as strategically as I could toward this elusive goal of, of enforcing the Bill of Rights uh, for everybody all over the country, I had to realize, I had to come to understand that uh, my position on the track was way ahead of where it had started three generations earlier, and that I had taken the baton from people who had been running for decades before me, whom I never knew, and that before too long, somebody would have to get on that track and take the baton from me, because I wasn't getting to the end of it. Although somebody's lifetime seems long to them, you know, 70, 80, 90 years is a very short period uh, in terms of, of, of political and social and legal development. You know, when you think that the censorship of the press began the day that the printing press was invented in the 15th century, and that the First Amendment didn't turn up until uh, late in the 18th century, and it wasn't really enforced until the middle of the 20th century, um, you know, you're talking about 500 years, and nobody's life embraces that. So these struggles go on uh, for centuries, uh, and no individual life can measure the progress. We, we try and capture that in the documentary. At the end, you're talking about that baton passing analogy, and there's clips of you at the FIRE Student Network Conference kind of you know, locking hands, shaking hands, hugging out with some of the next generation, some of these students who you had just spoken to and shared your story with. Yeah, well, that's, what, you know, that's what's been thrilling to me about your efforts uh, uh, in, in not only making this film, but in what you guys at FIRE are, have been doing uh, the thing that's thrilling to me is that you're the same age I was when I first got to the ACLU, a year older maybe. And it's very important to me that the baton be passed to people who are at the beginning of a lifetime of running, because otherwise it just peters out. And one of the reasons why I am so insistent about the idea of what I call social justice libertarian is that. Uh, how the Bill of Rights is enforced and against whom and for whom is a very critical, I have come to understand uh, over, over the career at the ACLU, is a very critical part of the goal of enforcing the Bill of Rights. That you, you know, I know that FIRE is a First Amendment organization, uh, and, and uh, I'm not asking you, know, you or it to become... Uh, uh, a multi-issue organization like the ACLU was. <laughs> if only we had time. <laughs> We've got our hands full enough. Well, you do have time, but 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 you know, it, it. I mean, you know, you have as much time as Baldwin had in 1920. But the fact yeah. is, is that is that uh, there. You know, during the course of my career, we worked with a lot of organizations. Some organizations were only issue, interested in reproductive freedom for women. Some organizations were only interested in the rights of mental patients. Some organizations were only interested in the rights of prisoners. Some organizations were only interested in immigration. Uh, some, uh, some organizations were only interested in, in skin color discrimination. We were the only organization that was what I used to call the conglomerate of civil liberties. We embraced them all, and, and that was our mission. And we, we worked with all of these single-issue organizations, uh, but it was very, very important to have an organization like the ACLU, 
that was non-political, non-partisan, and devoted to the entire range of issues embraced by the Bill of Rights, whether it was criminal justice, whether it was uh, Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Eighth Amendment, First Amendment. Uh, these were all important, and though there were liberties that we advocated that were not in the Bill of Rights, and that there were some elements of the Bill of Rights that we didn't focus on, it was our definition of civil liberties that determined our mission, not somebody else's. We didn't we we did not take our mission from the Bill of Rights. Uh, our mission was our own invention. You know, I, I like to say that that if the ACLU had been involved. Uh, had been around in 1850, there wasn't the 14th Amendment, there wasn't the 13th Amendment, slavery was not prohibited, it wasn't part of the Bill of Rights, it wasn't part of the Constitution, but I like to think that we would have opposed slavery anyway, even if it wasn't in the Bill of Rights. I like to think that we would have supported the right of women to vote even before the Constitution was amended to give them that right, that we got our definitions of liberty from our own analysis of what liberty was and what liberties people should have and what limits the government power to deny those liberties should be. And where the Constitution agreed with us, we were happy to invoke it. But we didn't get our mission from the Constitution. You know, any more than, than you know, if a person has a right to vote, you think that that right is what some philosophers have called natural law. They have the right to vote because they're human beings. They have the right to vote because because they they have a right that that comes to them by virtue of of, of the humanity, uh, and if a government recognizes that right, that's great. Uh, if the government doesn't recognize that right, then you fight to get it to recognize that right. But you're not limited. You're not your mission is not defined by what the government uh, chooses to recognize. You hope that what the government chooses to recognize is defined by your mission. Well, even the Bill of Rights, the authors of the Bill of Rights, of course, did not think of that, those 10 amendments as being exhaustive of, of all rights. I mean, the Ninth Amendment was there to right. kind of <laughs> be the catch-all for all those other rights that, that they didn't enumerate. Uh, well, that's right. And, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons that, you know, one of the things that people have to remember about the Bill of Rights is that their amendments to the Constitution. They weren't part of the original Constitution as it was written because there was a huge fight at the Constitutional Convention about whether or not um, you needed to have uh, these rights defined in the Constitution. And one of the reasons that some people, including you know, people like James Madison, who is thought of as the father of the Bill of Rights, uh, one of the things that he did in arguing against it at the Constitutional Convention was that you couldn't possibly define them all. And if you didn't define them all, if you made a list of 10 or 15 or 20, then people in the courts would think, well, you know, um, uh, this isn't in the list, so it probably isn't a right. And that's why they added the Ninth Amendment to say, you know, in case we've forgotten something, this doesn't, this list is not exhaustive. But, but the the, um, uh, you know, they were a little naive at the Constitutional Convention. The, the the dominant people there believed, dominant number of delegates there believed that. Um, the Constitution gave government certain powers. And if it didn't give the government the power to censor the press, then the government wouldn't have the power to censor the press. Other people who were much more mistrustful said, the government will take whatever power is not denied to it. 
And so you have to have not only a constitution that confers power on the government, in order to protect rights, you have to have a constitution that denies government certain powers. And among those, the power to speak, the power to publish, fair trial rights, the, the, the government is denied the right to search, uh, except under defined conditions, all of that. And, and in order to get the constitution as it was originally written, ratified by the required number of states, they had to end up agreeing to add the Bill of Rights. And uh, James Madison, who was part of the original drafters and, and opposed the Bill of Rights initially, was defeated on that ground in his campaign to be a senator from his home state of Virginia and later ran for Congress uh, in a district of Virginia. And, and, and it was somewhere along there that he changed his mind. Uh, and the reason he changed his mind is because he got voted down. You know, the, the spirit of liberty was, was present in the founding generation of this country because they had experienced oppression as a British colony. I used to say that the founding generation in this country was the last majority of Americans that believed in the Fourth Amendment because they had all suffered or knew somebody close to them who had suffered illegal searches by the British uh, soldiers. And nowadays, most people are so protected by the Fourth Amendment against such illegal searches that they, they don't think it's important to support because, because you know, when you look at you looked at the stop and frisk epidemic in New York City during the, the Bloomberg and Giuliani administrations. It was largely implemented against black and brown people. Black and brown people did not use marijuana in any larger proportions than white people. In fact, the contrary was the case. But, but 85 to 90 percent of all the illegal stop and frisk that took place in New York City, and they were like at some point for years, five, six, seven, 800,000 a year um, were executed against uh, uh, people with darker skin color, mostly young men and teenagers. So a lot of people um, who looked like me uh, didn't think that there was a Fourth Amendment crisis, that didn't think that there was a danger of illegal searches because it had never happened to them or to anyone else that they knew. I mean, my kids grew up as teenagers in the 70s in New York City, and they smoked weed, and um, they never got approached by a cop. Not once. They traveled to school. They went to public schools. They were in the subways. They were in Central Park. They were in the, on the streets. They never once got approached by a cop. Every black friend that they had had been approached and searched and stopped and frisked multiple times by cops. And that was when I began to see that you cannot enforce the Fourth Amendment just in terms of the liberty rights of the Fourth Amendment. You cannot enforce the First Amendment just in terms of the liberty rights of the First Amendment. You have to also deal with the fact that when the government takes this power illegitimately, it doesn't use it uniformly against everybody. It uses it against the weakest, most vulnerable minorities, whether they're political minorities or racial minorities or sexual minorities, and if you don't engage in the fight for equality for those minorities, you cannot protect the underlying libertarian rights. Yeah, and that's the, that's the larger message of the documentary is your explanation. And, and it kind of culminates at the end when you're on the Phil Donahue show 
with that uh, one white supremacist, there is that woman or the KKK member, there's that woman in the audience who said, well, our constitution protects the rights to domestic tranquility. Uh, but this, this seems to me with this KKK guy that it's not promoting domestic tranquility. It's promoting, you know, uh, you know, lawlessness and unrest. And then the, the KKK guy speaks up and he said, no, 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 no. If I were in charge, we would have domestic tranquility because we would not have any of this lawlessness. We would not have any of this rest. And it brings home after, you know, an hour and 15 minutes of the documentary, your larger point, which is, you know, political power is often wielded unequally. And if you allow political expediency to choose, pick and choose who gets to speak, um, you can't always assume that it'll be Ira Glasser or your, your favorite politician who will be in power. It'll be Donald Trump or... Uh, Mr. Stoner, in this case, uh, the K- member of the KKK, and you know, just you know, to kind of put a bow on this, I've got a I've got a whole page of questions here, and we've gotten through three, which is typical for our conversations, Ira. But to put a bow on this, I mean, I when I was in high school, I was a member of one of the best track teams in the country, track and cross country teams in the country. We had 26 st- state titles in 50 years, not including second and third places. And one of the things that really motivated me as an athlete on that team in those years was the tradition, was hearing from our coaches who had been there for most of those 50 years about the people who came before us. And when we were on the track, it almost felt like we were running with ghosts and that we had a duty to those who came before us to carry on that tradition. And in a, in a larger sense for me, this documentary and telling your story almost as a composite for, for those of your generation uh, is carrying on that tradition, is telling that story, is telling that history. And in the documentary, at the beginning, you'll, you might recall you say, you know, how can anyone expect to remember this history if you don't tell them about it? And you're referencing there the young girls who met you outside of Ebbets Field. And, and uh, you know, we close out the documentary by you telling the group of students about the history um, and about passing the baton. Uh, and so that's a through line for us. And, and I hope that this documentary is a retelling of that history and a t- retelling of what it means or meant to be a uh, social justice civil libertarian as as you put it in those years. And that's why I, want, I so much wanted to include so many voices of your generation, the Philippa Strums, the David Goldberger, the Norman, Norman Siegel, who comes shortly after your generation, but has a similar mindset. I almost thought about calling the documentary The Civil Libertarian because of its kind of message, its composite message of what it means to be a civil libertarian. But a very astute and wise counselor told me that most people won't know what that means. They'll think it means political libertarianism, which is something completely different. Um, so we ended up going with Mighty Ira, which I thought was also, you know, I know you were concerned about the documentary being hagiographic, but, um, you know, baseball's a through line of the documentary too. And that poem that we asked you to read at the end from the, uh, one of the gentlemen, your colleagues who voted against you to become the executive director of the ACLU is it is a play on Mighty Casey at the bat, which is a very famous, famous baseball poem. And also this mighty Ira concept. I mean, you watch the documentary, you see you on firing line, you have a very mighty way of carrying yourself. You have a very mighty way of debating. You don't back down. You're authoritative. You don't use notes. So I just thought it not only captured your character, but also captured your passion for baseball um, and that through line from the documentary. So, you know, in the same way, traveling hopefully meant something to to Roger Baldwin, I think baseball meant something to you and, and history means something to you as well. So a little bit of background on why we chose the title, because I don't think I ever discussed the title with you. I think you only knew about the title once the documentary came out. 
People asked me about that, and I said, I didn't know about it until I watched it myself. And I said, you know, <laughs> it was, at first, it was a little... It was a little embarrassing, you know, and, 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 um, uh, uh, but I remember, I remember that, that poem that, that board member wrote at, 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 at one of the anniversary celebrations or something that we had of my tenure there. And, and I remember I liked it because, uh, because it was, uh, it was focused on baseball, which I always took to be, uh, a metaphor and, and, uh, of, of how we struggled and, and that, you know, and my 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 glomming on to my Jackie Robinson experience was always that uh, I used to say, you know, we tried to protect civil liberties in the same way he danced off third base, which was uh, daringly, uh, spectacularly, relentlessly, and successfully. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and and so so you know it was. It was not just the you know the, the 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 racial struggle that that his story represented, but also his style of of dealing with it, uh, um, and and the way he channeled his aggressiveness and his competitiveness. I not only copied his batting stance when I played <laughs> baseball, but I tried to copy his style when I was at the ACLU, and so did Norman Siegel. And a bunch of other people. There was there was something for that generation of us who went through that experience. His style of play and his way of dealing with the oppression became incorporated into our own styles of of how we dealt with uh, civil liberties issues and social justice issues uh, in our own lives. And um, so so these these metaphors uh, can can often take on uh, a life of their own and. And it's very important because it's it's the way that we understand things is 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 through is through those metaphors. I mean that's that's how when you talk about the marathon relay race, when you talk about starting out from the shadow of your own goalposts and being on the opponent's thirty yard line after a hundred years, um, when you talk about uh, being thrown for a loss on a play that didn't work and getting up off the ground and calling another play and getting back to it. Uh, when you talk about stamina and persistence and and keeping on, um, all of these metaphors are very effective ways of understanding what you're talking about, uh, and they do a better job of explaining it to younger people uh, than 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 abstract language. And so, you know, I I I I, I like that the film captured that and and that you guys understood how to do it and, and did it in a way that, that, that seemed to me to be very effective and very communicative. And um, so we'll see. Uh, I'll, I'll see you at the Academy Awards, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I wish. <laughs> so Ira, it's, it's, been a, it's been a really big pleasure. It's three years in the making. If another documentary, documentarian comes around, uh, you, you think you'll be up for another three years? <laughs> So somebody asked me, well, you guys only, you know, they only dealt with really two issues. They only dealt with, you know, free speech and racial justice. What about all the other issues? I said, well, you know, uh, maybe we'll turn it into a series if I can, if I can uh, suck it up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you know, part of, part of the reason we focused on those two issues, and I like to think talking across lines of difference and the importance of that is another issue, especially as it relates to your relationship with William F. Buckley right. and Ben Stern. Was is you know yes. we've been talking now for a, for an hour and eight minutes. 
I've gotten through four of my questions. You know, your your history is just so rich. In order to have a a narrative that makes sense, you need to pick and choose, unfortunately. And um, you know, also it's a production yes, of, right. of Fire and the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. So we needed to make sure that some of the issues that we focused on were were relevant to our core mission as well, which is of course defending First Amendment rights and values and values of legal equality and talking across lines of difference. But we, I'd like to think that we got a little bit, a, a, a few more tastes of Ira in there with your baseball uh, stuff, with your growing up and seeing the civil rights movement transpire. But yeah, you know, even if we don't make another documentary, uh, we've got at this point, three and a half hours of podcasts and, and hopefully Ira, I can get you on again sometime <laughs> in the future and we, and we can finish my list of questions once and for all. Yes, well, you know, there was a lawyer at the ACLU who once, uh, uh, in one of our cases, called me as a witness, uh, as an expert witness, and I think it was a campaign finance case, and um, uh, and he had a long list of questions, and he always joked and saying, the only thing I got to ask is I asked, I asked him his name, and then, you know, an hour later, he came up for air, and I got to ask my second question, and by that time, the, the court was ready to adjourn. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ira, it's our time to adjourn now. Thank you so much again for coming on the show, and it has been my distinct pleasure to share at least some parts of your story. Thanks, Nico. That was Ira Glasser. The film is Mighty Ira, a civil liberty story, and you can learn more about the film and see the different ways to watch it by visiting MightyIra.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. Mighty Ira is co-directed by me, Nico Perino, and my colleagues Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. And please, if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed the documentary Mighty Ira, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you watched that film. Reviews are the best way for you to support what we do on this podcast and what we did with this film. They help us attract new listeners and viewers. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed the film and thanks again for listening.